welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. I'm really excited and, you know, I could have a little bit of the vapors here um, because we are kicking off our June Sizzling Sexy Summer Series all on autistic sex. So gear up, get ready, have fun. We're going to play. We're going to enjoy. We're going to explore. We're going to talk about stuff nobody else is talking about in the autistic world. We're going to talk about us, our our sensory sensitivities, our sexual identities, the things that make us unique in our neurotype and also in our approach and enjoyment or like for a lot of those asexual folks out there, those that just like aren't interested in sex. We're going to talk about that too, because all of that is part of our autistic experience. This is a very open conversation. This is one that includes everyone. This isn't about being one particular sexual orientation or not. This is about all sexual, sexual orientations. So I've got some amazing events coming up this month, and I'll share those about halfway through the episode. We'll break for a second, and I'll, I'll let you know about the live events and workshops and some incredible things coming up. Kicking off this series today is the amazing Amy Gravino. She is out there. She's autistic. She's talking about sex. She's teaching about sex. She's writing about sex. You're going to love her. You're going to enjoy this conversation. She's so much fun. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Carol Jean, founder and host of Mind Your Autistic Brain talk show and community. And you're about to experience the new way to thrive in life and relationships as a late identified autistic by unveiling who you are, how you communicate, finding your self-care plan from the inside out, and being the authentic creator of your best life. Get ready because this is where we go against the mainstream, say no to outdated society norms, and we say yes to who we are in order to create a joy-filled, balanced, and more neurodistinct world. Welcome to Mind Your Autistic Brain. Today on Mind Your Autistic Brain, I am very excited to welcome Amy Gravino. She is at the Rutgers Center for Auti Adult Autism Services. She works in sexuality, advocacy, and relationship coaching. She's also been a TED speaker for the Jersey City TED Talk, Why Autism is Sexier Than You Think It Is. We're going to talk about all things sex, dating, and relationships today, and I'm really excited to introduce you to Amy. Amy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited you're here. Oh, thank you so much, Carol Jean. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Amy, you talk about some amazing things. And I, I sat down and watched your TED Talk. And I just, I went back and watched it again just the other day to kind of refresh myself. Because I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is so relatable. And she's talking about so many things that nobody talks about. Mm -hmm. And there's like all of these perceptions that people have about us, like, oh, you're autistic. You must not be interested in sex, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff. And you talk about some of the barriers that we face as autistics and dating. And I, I love this and I really want to dive into this, but what made you, and I want you to kind of share with the audience watching and listening today, what made you interested 
and talking about sex and, and looking at relationships. I mean, this is like part of what you studied, you know, for your master's. So please share that. Sure. Thank you. So I mean, it's been an interesting journey because it wasn't something I set out to talk about, but it's always kind of come naturally to me to talk about sex. I never felt kind of that sense of shame around it that I think where a lot of people inherently feel just because of the puritanical society in which we live. Um, and so you know, when I began exploring my own sexuality, that was sort of the first step was starting to write erotic fan fiction and feeling comfortable, you know, putting that kind of stuff out there because I didn't have other outlets to explore my sexuality because of the bullying I was experiencing and the isolation. And so the writing kind of became that outlet. And so I, and I mean, I just never felt like anything bad about it or felt like this is something that's wrong. It was a part of my expert self-expression um, as an autistic woman, as a writer. And so, you know, the, the path has sort of got, threaded itself through my life. That was, that was the first start of it. And then uh, in 2010, I started a fan fiction website for uh, the band, The Monkees from the 1960s, not The Primate. A friend and I started that. And, and so it was a site that published this type of fiction. And it, again, it just felt like a very natural thing. It wasn't something I felt embarrassed about. It was an outlet for other people as well, which was, which was a really great thing. Um, and so, you know, around that same time, I was finishing up graduate school. I was going for my master's degree um, in ABA, and I had wanted to do something that involved working with autistic adults. I knew from myself that there's a lack of supports and services for adults on the spectrum. Probably everybody else in my classes was doing early intervention, working with little kids, and I didn't get along with kids when I was a kid, so like let them do that because they're good at that. But I'm like, there's just a whole population here that is not being helped and not being served and supported. And so, I um, I was very interested in this, and I decided to for my thesis study to help two adults on the spectrum learn how to ask someone out on a date, and that, so that was what I did, decided to explore. It was you know very limited study because of, of the scope and the amount of time I had to do everything, but um, that was what I was interested in. And then around just about a few years after that, about 2013. I began presenting on autism and sexuality uh, with Dr. Peter Gerhardt, who's a very good friend and colleague of mine. And he's been working with autistic adults longer than anybody I know. Um, and he's done the sexuality thing for many, many years. So, so I began presenting with him and he would do the clinical side and I would do the personal side and talk about my experiences with dating and relationships, which again, a lot of people are uncomfortable doing that, but I'm not. So I, it just felt just like something that I could do. And so as time went on, I began to craft my own presentation and built, built in my study, built in talking about teaching skills and about the consequences of not providing comprehensive and accurate sex education to people on the spectrum. And the need has just gotten bigger and bigger as the years have gone on. Every year, there are more and more people at my presentations because all of a sudden people realize that autistic kids become autistic adults. Like, who knew that that's actually what happened? Um, I, I was under the impression that we emerged fully formed from like the head of Zeus, like, you know, like Athena, but apparently not. And uh, so, so yeah, so it's just the, the, the need has just grown and grown. And then um, I started this position at Rutgers in, in March of 2020, which is a weird time to start a new job, you know, because I was there for two days and then it was spring break and then pandemic. Um, so I, I was working remotely, you know, up until September of last year. And so I really feel like I've just started kind of in a way, you know, I'm getting to know my colleagues and, and getting to figure out the lay of the job and all that it entails. And so, yeah, that's kind of what led me to, to where I am now. I love that so much. And I really want to dive into some of the insights that you've gained because, you know, in Mind Your Autistic Brain, 
we talk about communication styles. We talk about relationships. We talk about our, our unique relationship types that we develop because so many different things influence our relationship types from auditory processing delays to alexithymia and, and you know, and all those things. And, um, you know, there's, there's barriers that you talk about that we face as autistics in dating. And I would love for you to share some of those with us. Sure, sure. So that's, uh, that's something I get asked as well when I give my presentations, like what are the barriers that folks on the spectrum can face in dating? And of course, the first thing I always say is, as we know, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, and we're all different. We all may share the same diagnosis, but what we have strengths as are different, what we have weaknesses or, or challenges with are different. And and also the sensory challenges and those types of things that we might have are different. I think a, a commonality tends to be the social challenges, difficulty with reading social cues and and you know nonverbal communication and just the things that are necessary to form a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship. Um, those are some some things that are really difficult for a lot of people on the spectrum. Is just you know understanding what the heck neurotypicals are trying to say because they won't just freaking say it, you know, <laughs> because. The way we talk about dating and sex in our society is in kind of a coded language. We don't say things outrightly. I mean, so like for an arm, how many words are there for an arm? It's, it's an arm. How many words are there for penis? There's there's a million euphemisms for penis. There's, you know, it's just like with emojis. Emojis, there's a whole secret language of emojis where they mean something other than just what they are. And if you don't know that language, you're going to miss out on so much subtext and so much context and all these things that people are using to communicate. Oh, well, hell, I just realized I was missing something. I didn't know that. You didn't know about the emojis? I didn't. I didn't know yeah, so, there was so, so the eggplant emoji, emojis. The eggplant emoji is a penis. The, the peach emoji is a butt. Um, oh, I did the, know the butt one. Yeah. The, the, the raindrop emoji is use your imagination. I mean, it goes on. It, it, it goes on. Um, a taco. Oh, damn, look at there. I just learned something new. Yeah. A taco <laughs> emoji can be a vagina. You know, there's a lot of. Yeah, it's this whole thing. Yeah, exactly. If you if you don't know, then yeah, you, it's like you're missing a whole other conversation that's happening. Yeah. And so, so yeah, the the social aspect is a big one for folks on the spectrum, but also for some folks on the spectrum, the sensory challenges can inhibit uh, forming relationships. You know, difficulties with being touched or being touched in certain ways, dealing with the you know the smell of people's bodies and and just all the sensations that that are associated with intimacy and, and sexuality. Um, so, so yeah, if there's a myriad, I think, of, of barriers that folks on the spectrum encounter um, when trying to form relationships. So I would love to know, because, you know, this is what you study. This is what you coach. This is what you teach. This is what you speak and present on. And I love it. This is what you write about. What would you say to someone who is an adult autistic, let's say, you know, hey, I just learned I'm autistic and this is sort of now a big part of my understanding of myself. And it makes sense why dating has been a challenge to this point. Now that I know these things, what are some of your best tips or insights for someone who is single, you know, starting to date now with the knowledge that they're autistic? What are some insights or some tips that you have mm -hmm. to help them better navigate the dating world? Because listen, I'm going to tell you, I am 47. And after my, di my divorce, I was like, oh my God, how do I even navigate dating? Yeah. Like, I don't even know what to, I don't, this is a whole different world for me. Right. And just the whole online thing, I looked at different dating apps and stuff like that. And I was just like, oh, this is like super uncomfortable and overwhelming. And I don't really know what all this, 
means because I know that there's a subtext to whatever this profile is saying, but I don't necessarily know exactly what they're saying. So what are maybe some ways that we can navigate this very complex space? So, so yeah, it's definitely very complex. And I think you, I, I, I often, and I know I felt this myself that I feel like I'm alone. Like everybody else has this figured out and I'm the only person on the face of the earth who doesn't understand these complexities. And the truth is, is, is that nobody knows what the hell they're doing with, with this stuff. Neurotypicals don't know what they're doing, but they're able to, to fake it better and they're able to compensate, I think, better for, for that. And that's a relief to know. It, you know. Isn't it? I mean, it should be. It should be a relief. And yet I know even knowing that consciously, there's, there's still that voice in my head that still wants to tell me that I am, you know, the, the one who keeps messing up and like all these guys who keep being interested in me for the short term and then not wanting to keep me around for the long term what's the common denominator it's got to be me it's hard not to to keep thinking that i'm the one to blame that's a pattern that many of us fall into from a young age and it, it stays with us through our lives and even when you get that diagnosis you know even though it may be an answer and may explain a lot of things that you've dealt with it, it's not necessarily going to stop you from wanting to self-blame that's something you have to actively work at that is a process um, and so, so, so don't be too hard on yourself if you can't stop being hard on yourself right away. That, that, that will take some time. And, you know, I, I haven't, like I said, I haven't been successful yet in finding a relationship, finding someone who, who will love me the way I feel I deserve to be loved. But I haven't given up hope that that's not, that that's still possible. And that's kind of the, the biggest thing is, uh, you know, it's so, it would be so easy to, to, to give up. I think it would be really easy. Um, but I'm, I'm a failed pessimist. I call myself. I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for the, you know, the, the positive side of people and, and, and the good, you know, good ending. And so I, I, I want to believe that it's, it's still possible. And like, I know you may feel frustrated. You may feel like, well, I just don't want to keep putting myself out there if, if the result is going to keep being, you know, so negative. And that's okay too, because you do need to take care of yourself. It's absolutely important to, to take care of yourself in this process and not neglect your needs. We often, as autistic people and women especially, are, are conditioned to put the needs of others ahead of our own. Um, and, and so we end up neglecting ourselves. And so first and foremost, take care of yourself, get to know who you are, incorporate this new information about the diagnosis in, in, into you. you know, it doesn't make you any more or less you, you're still you, you're the same you that you always were. Now you have this added piece of information that might help fill in some blanks. And, and so, you know, it's okay to take the time to figure out what the diagnosis means to you and, and what it is you want now that you have this information and then to go forward from there. Oh, that is such a good one. And that's one that is a really hard one sometimes, you know, especially when we are women and we've, we've come from this societal norm of you know, people pleasing and making sure that everybody's needs are met and taken care of. And so often that is what has contributed most often to our autistic burnout. You know, it's like we get to a point of like just absolute depletion. And that's a hard place to try and navigate finding a relationship and making connections when you just don't have the energy for it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, um, exactly. I, I love what you said about, you know, just discovering what it is for you. Like, Amy, I would love to know, what would you suggest or what are some, some thoughts that you, or insights that you've had on sort of getting to know yourself before you start dating to sort of 
define some healthy boundaries Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's something that a lot of times, especially when I ask my coaching clients and in small groups and people that I work with in workshops, it's like, Hey, what were you taught about boundaries growing up? You know, what are your personal boundaries in these seven areas? And people are usually like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. We never discussed that growing up. So I would Mm -hmm. love to know some of your insights because I know that that's something that's really really a part of what you looked at is sort of like, what do I want? What are my healthy boundaries? What am I looking for in a relationship? What do I deserve and how do I want to exactly. be loved and, and respected and honored and yeah. in a relationship? So please share that with us. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely very hard to know what your boundaries are when you've never had any before either you've had them and they haven't been respected or you've never been taught how to set them in the first place. And, you know, for me, I find there's the two, there's two types of boundaries, physical boundaries and emotional or mental boundaries. And so one thing that, you know, has helped me is it's getting to know my body, first of all, just physically, you know, engaging in, in masturbation and finding out what do I like and what feels good and what, what don't I like. And so that way I can advocate for myself better in the bedroom when I'm with a partner. That's not an easy thing. Like, I mean, I'm working on an eight-year dry spell here, but from my distant memory of the last time, I was able to speak up more. And I, and I felt that, and I, it was empowering to be able to, you know, and then also the fact that I had a partner who legitimately checked in and was like, like, cause we, we, we engaged in, in foreplay and all the other stuff. And right before we had intercourse, he actually asked me, do you want to blank? And nobody had asked me that before at like, no guy had ever, you know, just wanted to make sure I was still into it. And I was like, yes, absolutely. You know, and, and I realized in that moment, how important that was to me, how that was something I didn't even know I needed um, and, and how much it mattered, right? Because that means that the person you're with is paying attention to you and they're, they care that you're into what's happening. And I had never kind of realized how important that was un- until that moment. And so, so the physical battery, but, but then, but then the emotional and the mental boundaries, like that's, that's, a, that's a harder thing to kind of feel out, to really think, because I think for many of us on the spectrum, we want to push ourselves. We want to think that we can do the things that are being asked of us by neurotypicals that, you know, they, that they think we should be able to do. And then we think we should be able to do it. And then it's because of pushing ourselves too hard that the burnout winds up happening and we break, we have meltdowns because we just try to do more than we were capable of in that moment. So it's that matter of really saying to myself, what am I capable of in this moment? I have to set this line. This is for my mental health and, and for my sake because I'm worth it. I'm worth setting that boundary because I, I am a valuable person and I want to do my best and I can't do my best if I'm pushing myself too hard to please other people. So that was an active process I had to engage in. I have to, I still have to actively tell myself that it's not an an innate thing. Like it may be for some people. I have to actively tell myself that because I don't always immediately think that. So that's been my process of trying to, to set boundaries. That's a really good one. Cause that's, that's me too, Amy. Like I have to remind, actively remind myself because it's not something that I innately do. It's not something that was sort of part of my vernacular growing up. It wasn't part of anything that someone intentionally showed or taught or discussed with me. So when this showed up in my world, you know, in my forties, I, I was late to the party, like everything else in my life. Right. And so just navigating what those were, and you know, that was another really big one was just understanding what pleasured my body and like spending time 
getting to know my body. And I have alexithymia. I didn't know that it wasn't part of my original, you know, diagnosis. But two years ago, I was like, you know, I think this really applies to me. You know, this wasn't discussed, you know, auditory processing delay and all that other stuff came as, you know, and mild dyslexia came as part of my identification, but not that. And I was like, I would really like to look into this. And they're like, oh yes, you are definitely alexithymic. I'm like, well, that explains a lot of other things that hadn't quite, you know, made sense yet. And it played a huge part in my sexuality and my awareness of my body and just being able to get comfortable. Like I was afraid of my own body forever. Yeah. And I was like married. I was married. I had two kids yet. I, I, I didn't know how to connect to my body. That's it. Yeah. I know it probably seems wild, but that was my experience. No, I know exactly. I, I know that feeling exactly because I felt the same way for a long time. And I don't know if it was fear so much as my self-esteem was so low that I just didn't care about my body. I didn't think it was worth investigating. I wasn't attached to it. It didn't have a value to me because I hated myself. Um, and so it took me time to, to, you know, not hate my body as well and to not feel that, that loathing. And, you know, I, I mean, I have sat down on my bed in the buff, taken a mirror and put it you know, in between my legs to see what's going on. Right. It's good to have like a status report every once in a while, you know, to see what's happening. I like that. So <laughs> I you, like that. I mean, yeah, you need a visual. How else are you going to know? So, and it took me a long time to, to feel comfortable enough to do that. It took me a long time to feel comfortable just being naked. Even I used to get out of the shower and I put on a towel immediately and I would never look in the mirror. And, and now I don't feel a comp compulsion to do that. Now I can take my time and I am happy being naked. I'm happy with who I see when I look in the mirror and, and, you know, I, my body, I feel now belongs to me. That's the biggest difference of all is, you know, when I got my first period, I went through five pairs of underwear before my mom came in the bathroom and was like, oh, you're a woman now. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't know even that I was having a period. You know, I didn't know what was going on. And so to go from that to, you know, just, I feel fully inhabited in my body now and in control of it is such a massive difference that I can't even begin to describe. So. Oh my gosh. Yes. So much yes to that, Amy. And thank you for sharing that because that is something that I hear and it echoes within my own heart and experience and so many other women that, that I've spoken with. And it's, there was so much self-hate, self-loathing for so long. I mean, up until just recently, and I mean, within the last year and a half recently, that I could look at myself and not for the first time, the first thought I had was like, oh, my legs are too thick. My butt's too big. My skin's not smooth. You know, some critical yeah. judgment upon my body, but to actually look at myself and go, mm -hmm. I love you. And you're beautiful. Just like this. That was huge. And it was just one of those rare moments where I didn't even know that was possible. Right. I didn't know yeah. that I, that I could love myself. How, I mean, what this... was the journey for you? Like, what did you do within your own journey that brought you to that place of self-love? Oh, well, that's, that's been a long journey as well. Uh, very definitely. Um, you know, I, I read something recently that I think is so erroneous. It said something about the autistic people aren't, aren't, don't feel the same social pressures as, as neurotypicals. Um, and 
yeah. And I, I was like, well, no, 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 we do. We feel the same pressures. We just don't have the tools to cope with them. We don't have the tools to, to know how to handle these, these and if, as women, especially. Um, and, and so I, I always likened myself to being an exposed raw nerve when I was younger. I was very, very sensitive. The whole world, you know, everything hurt the slightest offenses to the biggest insults. I couldn't distinguish one from the other. And now that, that's not a, a good way to be, you know, to, to have everything cut you so, so to the quick. And, and, you know, so part of the journey to loving myself was growing thicker skin, but, but the way I was able to grow thicker skin was, to, was that I began to become more confident. And, and the confidence started the day that I stopped giving a crap what people think of me. Um, I mean, obviously I care, you know, like what the people that I care about, like my, my parents or, or, you know, but, but like complete strangers, because I used to even go to the beach and, and I always felt like everybody's staring at me for the wrong reason. They think I'm ugly and awful. And I, and that will, that will now I know probably nobody was staring at me, number one. But number two, I don't care like what these people who I'm never going to see again, you know, are, are thinking of me out on the beach. What does it matter? Um, and so freeing myself from that was a huge part of, of, of starting that, that journey, definitely. Um, and I, you know, for so long, I sought this validation, right? I, I thought that if I can just have a guy tell me that I'm pretty and tell me that like I'm okay, then I'll finally like myself. Um, and, you know, that has happened. I've had guys tell me that I'm attractive and whatever, but that, that validation only came when I heard it from myself. It only came when I was able to look at myself and, and feel it within that, that yes, I'm, I'm pretty or whatever, not, you know, whatever it may be. It had to be something that came from me. It couldn't come from any external source. Um, and, and I wish I had some kind of concrete like explanation for how I got to there, but it just was a gradual process. It was, you know, it was going through trials and errors and mostly errors and, you know, getting, you know, knocked back and, and having my heart broken and all these things and just, and just continually, continuously coming out the other side was, I think the thing is that, because, you know, people, I've had people say to me, oh, like, when, when, the one time I got my heart broken by this guy, and he was like, sorry for ruining your life. And I just thought, like, how, get, how dare you give yourself that much credit? You didn't ruin my life. Like, I'm still here. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's the very thing is that I think as autistic people, we are more resilient than neurotypicals because we have to be. And hey, I promise I'd jump back in with letting you know what those events are that are coming up. So be sure you go to the Mind Your Autistic Brain event page. The link is on my profile in Instagram. It is also available on the website at socialaudi.com. Make sure you go to our Mind Your Autistic Brain events page to get registered for one of the following events. Or, hey, I'm putting together something special. There will be a package access so you can sign up and get access to all of these. So coming up first will be Thursday, the 16th of June, and I will be doing a YouTube over on YouTube on the Mind Your Autistic Brain channel, live with Mona Kay of Neurodiverse Love. We're going to be talking about sex from the variations of neurotypes coming together, because you know, there's some differences when that happens. We'll be talking about those things. Then you can join me and my guest, the autistic author on Saturday, the 18th. And hey, by the way, that's Autistic Pride Day. This event is open to anyone and everyone who is autistic wanting to learn more about sensual intimacy and tuning into your sensory pleasure and more. She is amazing. She teaches all about sex. 
It's one of the things that she coaches on, and you're going to love her energy. We're going to be talking about sexual energy as well. Uh, Also coming up in our final event to sort of wrap up this amazing month of autistic sex is my very special guest. And I absolutely adore this man, Michael John Carley. He is the best-selling author and the editor-in-chief of Neurodiversity Press. And we will be sharing a conversation, an open question and answer session on his book, The Book of Happy, Positive, and Confident Sex for Adults on the Autism Spectrum and Beyond. Guys, I love this book. I hope that you are joining me in reading it and diving into some of the amazing topics and conversations that he is bringing up and discussing in his book about autistic sex. And by the way, just so you know, because not it's not always completely evident, Michael John is autistic. So thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for signing up, being a part of the Mind Your Autistic Brain community, and for diving in and being a part of the autistic sex conversation this month. Stick around. Back to the show. In order to succeed and thrive in this world, it's not built for us. And so I've had to be resilient, you know, just to survive and just to get through kind of all this stuff. And then somehow that has buffeted me and enabled me to keep pushing forward and keep getting to the, the place I'm at now where I, I guess people do respect me, which is like, I don't know. I don't know how people see me exactly. It's hard to see from an, an inside perspective, what, what people see looking from the outside in, but apparently they do. <laughs> if my very busy email inbox is any indication, I guess they do, but it, it's, you know, and that's great and all, but it's, it's, it's what came from me that has made the most difference. And it's, it's really just, you know, knowing that I'm a, I am a valuable person not, not, not necessarily because of what I have to contribute, but just because I exist in the world and I'm taking up space and it's okay for me to take up space. And that was something I never felt before was that I could take up space. So now I do know that. There we go. It wouldn't come off mute. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I am so glad you take up some very valuable real estate, my friend. You really do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You know, I love that. And one of my mentors, someone who coaches and has coached me, asked me a question a while back, and it was one that really stopped me in my tracks. And it sounds like you sort of went through a very similar sort of awareness shift. And I had looked at the whole world and everyone around me, even perfect strangers, and was always thinking, what do they think of me? Yeah. What, how do they perceive me? What do they think of me? And he said to me, Carol Jean, what do you think of yourself? Yeah. And I thought, holy crap, I never asked that question. Yep. I had told myself some really horrific, very judgy things, right? Oh, yeah. All the things I wasn't. Yep. But never, well, what do I think of myself? And really put some thought into it. Exactly. And when I started to do that, that's where, that's where things started to shift for me. Just that awareness of, you know, I never really even stopped to ask, well, what do I think of myself? I don't know that yeah. that's something that most people have a, a conscious dialogue about. 
I think maybe some people on a subconscious level do that sort of, you know, this is how I think and feel about myself. I mean, much like Mr. Wonderful, who thought he'd ruined your life. I mean, who the world, who in the world thinks they have that much power, right? But, oh, he did. Interesting fella. Good thing that that ended probably. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, it's, it's just that it, and it has been, I think you described it really beautifully. It's just sort of this gradual, you know, incremental steps and it's take 10 steps forward and maybe two steps back. But even in that two steps back, it's sort of this grit and this resiliency that I think we do have more, more so than most neurotypes because we we've had to, it's sort of in order to survive, we've had to do that. Exactly. I love what I would love to know just for you because maybe that's, it's something that will help someone else. Another woman who's, who's never stopped to really think about or connect with her body in a sexual way, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of times we don't even know that we should kind of like, I don't know what I should think. I mean, yeah. I, I, what about myself? Well, I don't know how I should be feeling or, or experiencing touch or sensation in my body. What would you suggest, or maybe how is a way to start begin, you know, exploring that and to really be open to whatever that is for you and that no matter what that is, it's, it's good and it's enough and it's okay. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, fireworks, you know, whatever you see on porn and, and, you know, romantic. Oh, yeah. yeah well, I, I mean, messes this up. Like it does. Our, no our it, expectations, right? It absolutely does because porn is not sex and sex is not porn. It's, it's not a, a, a realistic picture of, of how sex actually occurs in real life. You know, it's a fantasy. It's a, often a distorted fantasy, depending on who's, who's doing the filming and whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's an accurate representation of what most sexual experiences are like. So it's important to strip away that expectation and, and not think that that's, this is what your experience is going to be like, or you're going to be terribly disappointed, I think, on a lot of different fronts. Um, and, you know, it, it's, the, the thing about, <laughs> the, the, I, I encountered this with a partner I had once where I, I, I laughed while we were fooling around and he got very upset about that. And I was like, but this is funny. I mean, sex is kind of inherently funny. It's weird and his body's mushing together. And, and so I think it's important to be able to not take it too seriously either. Like, obviously, uh, you know, I'm not saying to take sex lightly, but the, the, the act in and of itself, you know, you want to feel comfortable enough with the person you're with to be able to do that, to be able to, to, to laugh and to, you know, to just re- relax, you know, because that's, that's, you, you want to relax during sex. You don't want to be tense, number one. But so that, that's, I think, you know, such a big part of it is, is you need to, if you're thinking about having sex with somebody who makes you feel uncomfortable in any way or who is not taking whatever concerns that you might have seriously, um, whatever those may be, then you shouldn't be having sex with that person. Most likely I, I would advise against it. Um, but, but again, yeah, the first, the first step, even before you're with a partner is to like to get to know yourself and to you know figure out like, and it, and it may not be, you know, an initially successful outing in, in whatever instance that may be. When I first started, you know, learning how to masturbate, like, I was like, am I doing this right? Like, this this, this feels weird. Like, what's happening? <laughs> you know, um, and 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 then I, I got to the orgasm part. And I was like, oh, okay, yes, now I get it. Okay, I got it. 
right ready old check um, found me a no <laughs> exactly so it's it's it is the process like it's a lot of you know figuring it out and figuring out what feels good to you and what and what doesn't feel good to you because you may also end up with somebody who says well you know all the other people i've been with liked it when i did that how come you don't like it and it's like well i don't like it you know that's it so don't do it but i was in that situation and i felt like there was something wrong with me and that i was the one who was broken because all his other girlfriends had liked that and and i didn't have the self confidence yet at that point or awareness to to say you know well okay that's great but i don't like it so don't do it um so yeah definitely you know just exploring yourself in whatever measured way works best for you i think that there are there may be some sex toys that are geared toward folks on the spectrum i think there's starting to be there's the whole line of you know sensory friendly types of stuff going on and um i'm not super duper you know familiar with all of them but there's definitely ways you know there's definitely things that that are starting to be out there that can help with your whatever sensory challenges you might be encountering and and you know above all else you know just go at your pace like there's no rush or hurry to to you know, you know it's 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 a it's a marathon not a sprint as they say to to to, to that end point and so you will you will get to where you want to go in your time in your way and when you're able to get there and that's all that matters oh i love that and that's so true and i love what you said about being able to laugh because i think that's one of the that has been one of the best parts of mine and josh's sex life our intimate life together is that we can laugh during sex. We both laugh. We find humor, you know, in the sensuality and, you know, because yeah. these do make noises and things they do be funny. And it's like, you know, my friend Candace and I were, were talking and, and we were, you know, she's, she's got the fabulously Candace podcast and you guys heard that episode last week. And I love it because, you know, that's just one of the things is like, that's just another language of communication with ourselves. It is. It's another it is. language that we communicate with our intimate partner with, mm-hmm. and we have to have fun and play in that relationship, just like we do in any other relationship that we have. That's a component. And I think so often, you know, we, we get misled by mass media and somehow this is supposed to be, you know, this really sensual thing. And, you know, like yeah. very white music supposed to be played in the background and candles and it's supposed to exactly. be, very, you know, intimate, very passionate thing. And sure it can be that, but it can also just be fun. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And we, we get misled by those media messages for sure. And it's, <laughs> you, yeah, if you, it's funny how you would see it and people are just so serious and it's like, like, Nobody's saying not to take it seriously, but but it is supposed to be exactly it is supposed to be fun and you should be able to to laugh or to, you know, oh, like I, I poked your with my elbow. Like, I mean, weird things happen during, during that. You know, that's how it is. So they do. And it just being and the and it feels good to have someone that you are in a relationship with that you trust, that you feel comfortable, that there's reciprocity there so that you can laugh and it's okay to laugh. Exactly. Right. And nobody's going to get, take it personally to the point, like you're making fun of me. It's like, no, that was funny. (laughs) And I can, I can appreciate that, you know, we can laugh in this moment. And I think you bring up something else that's really important to talk about when we're talking about our relationships, we're talking about sex with ourselves, we're talking about sex with other people. And that's our sensory needs because we all have different sensory needs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is a huge population within 
the sex world, people that like BDSM, people that like different types of sex and play. And a lot of that factors into our sensory needs or our sensory differences. You know, some people feel more safe when they have like restraint or they have like pressure on their bodies. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. so many Mm -hmm. different things and, you know, societal norms are like very rigid and, you know, this is how you have sex and this is the appropriate way to have sex and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those things. And it doesn't, it doesn't work well because it, it really sends a false message because every human has different sensory needs. We all like different types of touch exactly. and, you know, yep. just experimenting and being open to that. What are some of your thoughts on, on the sensory experimentation for yourself? No, totally. I mean, I, I've, I've explored that on myself as well. And um, yeah, there's a lot of folks on the spectrum, a high preponderance, I think who engage in kink or in like BDSM practices, and I mean, obviously there, there are safety considerations to think about with that. There's unfortunately a high likelihood of folks on the spectrum being taken advantage of in BDSM communities if, if there are not proper safety protocols in place. And um, because it is a relationship that is built on trust, there has to be a trust between the people in the arrangement and that can be easily taken advantage of by somebody who's less than scrupulous. So there's, you know, obviously those considerations are, are very important, um, but but yeah, you know, I, I do enjoy some some sensory play. And um, I mean, I still somebody needs to get Dr. Freud out here and tell me why I hated being spanked when I was a kid. And now I like it as an adult. Like, why? I don't know how that happens. If there's something weird going on there. But so that's that's yeah, that's that's like impact play. You know, that's something that definitely, you know, like the sensory sensations of that can be really um, exciting and interesting. And it's and almost kind of stimmy. I was like about to say, yeah, regulating. Very, yeah, yes. very much so. Like, I like that, but mm-hmm. only in a certain area. Yes. Like, don't exactly. go other places. Like, you can keep it right here. And it, yeah. I like the rhythm mm-hmm. and the vibration because there's a vibrational resonance yep, yep, with that. Yep, yep. And it's, it's, I love that. I love that you're talking about that. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I think it can be something that can actually help a lot of folks on the spectrum explore their sensory you know, sensitivities or, or some challenges they might have for some people. It might help to desensitize them a little bit to certain touches that maybe they otherwise were uncomfortable with to start out with. It, you know, everybody's coming from a different place. So it depends on what someone's looking for, what they're looking to get out of it. That That's all a part of it. And But it's about the communication as well between the people engaged in, in that arrangement. And, you know, making the communication always has to be paramount in any kind of BDSM arrangement like that. So that's the most important thing I would say. Oh, I love that. And you're so right because, you know, there's, I've seen and talked to so many people who have been in relationships, you know, and because we take people at their word, we tend to be much more vulnerable and susceptible. You know, there can be situations where that comes up and it, it can be very detrimental. So I think it's always really beneficial to have very over communicate as my coaching partner, Ali says, over communicate yes. everything. Right. And really make sure that everyone's on the same page of Absolutely. understanding and that there's trust in there. So what I love, one of the things that you brought up, and I thought this was just pure genius, but I think in a lot of ways, it is very helpful in a practical sense. And I don't, I know that you meant this in just in a lot of ways, but your intercourse survey. Oh yeah. The sexual intercourse <laughs> oh. comment card. Yeah. I love that so much because honestly, I think that if we asked some of those questions before we had sex, yeah, it would really make a difference. I mean, like, what would you think, like, 
you know, my mom growing up told my sister and I, I was just like, look, if you can't turn the light on and you can't look at your partner's naked body and you won't let them look at yours, it's a good sign that you're not in a place you should be having sex. Yeah. And it's kind of like, this is almost one of those things where I felt like if you can't have these conversations before you have sex, you know, sometimes that it makes a difference. I mean, sometimes sure we just feel things and we just want to go for it. Then there's other times if we're looking to build a deeper, more authentic, deeply connected relationship, having some of these conversations about sex before we have sex, or maybe before the next time we have sex would be helpful. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I will say the one caveat that I will give is that the reason why that might be challenging for some folks on the spectrum is that they, we just don't have the language to have those conversations. People haven't been taught what some things mean or you know the vocabulary to talk about this stuff. So that unfortunately is why a lot of the times those conversations don't take place before sex, even though they, they should, they absolutely should. So, um, so yeah, that, that's why sex education is the first and most paramount step. Is, is giving people the information they need so that they can have those conversations. Um, and again, people, I think, get freaked out when they hear the word sex education. We're not teaching people how to have sex. We're teaching people how to live life. That's the, that's the thing. And, and th- this is such a, a crucial part of that, like, like what we're saying here. So, so yeah, but it has to start there in, in order to enable people to have these conversations. Otherwise, they won't. And then, you know, the thing with my comment card is that all those questions were, for, were designed to be answered after having intercourse. It was about, you know, my vocal volume and this, you know, all that. So, but, but yeah, talking about some of that beforehand probably would have been a good idea too, I think for a lot of reasons. But So Amy, do you have a, a suggestion or a resource mm-hmm. that people could go look up or do you have something that you have available for people who are looking to, to explore sex education, to get a different vernacular so that these conversations can happen before and after sex? And before and after, as we're in relationship. Well, I, part of the work I'm doing at the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services is to develop a sex ed curriculum for folks on the spectrum. That's something that is, has been in, in the works for a while now. Um, we're exploring the funding for that right now, trying to get funding to make that happen. Um, but I also would recommend that the Organization for Autism Research, OAR, has a sex ed guide for self-advocates. Um, I collaborated on that in part with Dr. Peter Gerhardt, we, we record the introductions to every section, but it covers everything from hygiene to gender identity to sexual orientation to consent to all of, all of it is there. Um, so it's, it's a pretty comprehensive resource, um, you know, for, for talking about this. So, but there, yeah, there needs to be more. I don't think there's quite enough out there in the way of resources for, for these particular types of conversations. So I would like to see that be something that happens. I would too. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. So any, any championing of your work that I could do, I want to. So uh, hello, big donors out there. If you're listening, you can donate to Amy's, Amy's work. <laughs> Rutgers yes, Adult Autism Services Center is looking for funding for this project. Um, Amy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for opening up and giving us some inside tips and some suggestions on where to go and how to navigate and how to just be within our bodies and do it in a really beautiful way. Because I think you lead by such a beautiful example of how you live and how you thrive in life and relationship. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol Jean. It's been my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. If, if folks want to find me online, I'm at amygravino.com is my website, uh, Twitter at amygravino, Instagram, amy.gravino. 
Um, so feel free to, to look me up. Absolutely. And I'm going to have all those links down in the show notes so you guys can go out and find Amy and you can find the OAR course and get all the goodness that she's got out there in the world and definitely make sure you're championing, sharing and supporting her. Thanks so much for being here, guys. And we'll see you next week. If you are someone who likes to help people and share what has made a difference in your life, please share this talk show with a friend and on your social media accounts so that you can be the blessing in another late-identified autistic's life. Be sure to tag me at Social Audi so I can personally say thank you. And to help keep the talk show ad-free, please consider becoming a one-time or recurring supporter through either Buy Me a Coffee or the Anchor Podcast links in the show notes below. I truly appreciate your support. Thank you for being a listener, and thank you for adding your voice to our story.